Good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Uh, There's a black pew Bible right there in front of you. Uh, Feel free to take that one and use it. And you can take that one home if you would like. Uh, We're actually going to start a new series this morning in the book of Mark. And I'll explain a little bit of that here in a moment. But we'll be in Mark chapter 1, about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. Before we get into that, maybe kind of step a little bit of context. So at the start of of every year, uh, millions of Americans will tune in and get ready to watch the Oscars. Now, uh, every year there's something a little bit about, a little different about the Oscars. I'm not going to go into what was different this year. But what's always the same is the red carpet, right? It's like that infamous Red carpet. It's like our cultural's uh, highest symbol of honor, prestige, and respect. So on Oscar night, there will be millions of Americans glue their eyes to the television, just seeing who is the worthy ones that can step foot on that red carpet. Right? It's, it's our country's best actors and actresses, sports superstars, musicians. Like if you're important, you're on the red carpet. Everyone is just eager to get the answers to all their questions, right? Like, which designer is going to be worn that night? Who's going to have the most expensive piece of jewelry on? Who will be holding hands with who, right? Like, we're all trying to figure out those questions. Or if you're like me, none of those questions will keep you up at night because you simply don't really care about the Oscars. Uh, You don't really watch it. But either way, if you're one that enjoys the Oscars, that's okay. Or if you're one who just rather watch something else or do something else than the Oscars, that's okay as well. But I think think there's a question though in the midst of this idea of our cultural symbol of the red carpet. And the question is this, who or what are you rolling out the red carpet for? Who or what are you rolling out the red carpet for? See, there's one thing within us that we can't escape and that we are worshipers. We are created to be that, to worship something. We are worshipful beings. So there's something that we do roll out the red carpet for. There's something that we do elevate in honor and respect. There's two questions that you can ask yourself to really begin creating a clearer path to what you roll out the red carpet for. The two questions are this. What do you spend your time on and what do you spend your money on? Answer those two questions and you're getting a good picture of what is your red carpet, what you're willing to roll out the red carpet for. What are you actually worshiping? It exposes our heart. Greg Bill, he's a seminary professor in Dallas. He says it this way. He says, what you worship is who you become. What you worship is who you become. Now, let's say that is true. We must have a very acute sense to what we spend our time, our money, and our energy on, to what we worship, because that will be the very thing that we will put our life in. So as we trek through this life, we're trying to figure out that question, who is or what is the rightful king of my heart? Is it my spouse? Is it my children? 
Is it my job? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it success? Is it my friends? Like, what is the rightful heir to my heart? And that's our life. It doesn't matter if you're a student here in middle school or high school or if you're retired. With every season, with every chapter, we're answering that question. Now, obviously, to the middle schooler, what you treasure is vastly different to probably the one who's retired here. But either way, we're all searching who is or what is worthy of my heart. So the question this morning is not, will there be a king of my heart? But the question is, who is the king of your heart? So what we'll see in our passage this morning is that finally, the long-awaited king, the worthy king is here. There's no longer a need to search. There's no longer a a need to, to guess. But yet he is here, the one who is worthy of our worship. And what's so amazing about this king, church, is that this is a king that's not necessarily looking for you to roll out the red carpet. This is a king that's not looking for you to clothe him in the finest fabrics or a king who is looking for you to place the crown of jewels upon his head, but simply a king waiting for you to give him your heart. So our main point that we'll see in our text this morning will be this. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited king. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited king. So with that being said, let's open the word of God to Mark chapter 1. And I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we read from his word. We stand because we want to hear from God this morning and from what he has to say to us. So Mark chapter 1. Verse 1 to verse 8. Let's read the word of God together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Church, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. So one thing I'm I'm extremely thankful for about Sunbury City Church and being a church planner that will be sent out through this local church is this church's heart for church planting. Uh, One thing I'm thankful for is that uh, the elders of the church has graciously allowed me to begin a new series. As you see, we're not in the book of Romans this morning. We're in the book of Mark. 
The reason why is that by God's grace in about a year from now, when we are launching a service in Sealands Grove, the very first book that we will be going through will be Mark's gospel. And I think that's so amazing. So by God's grace, every time you see me in this pulpit, we'll open and see what does Mark's gospel have to say to us in preparation for his glory through this church plant in Sealands Grove. And Mark's gospel is really a beautiful gospel. Uh, it wasn't really till here recently, Mark's gospel was kind of considered the least of the gospels. It wasn't as cool as the other three. Uh, the other three are Matthew, Luke, and John. Uh, but recently, uh, there's became great excitement and understanding of the book of Mark. If you have ADD, the book of Mark is for you. The book of Mark is super fast paced. Actually, Mark will use this word immediately 42 times. So this entire picture of the gospel of Mark is to do one thing. It is trying to paint this big picture of who is Jesus. It's very fast paced, just story after story, very little details. So the details that Mark does give us, we need to really figure out why and then step back and see how do they point to Christ. So it's a very fast paced book. And the heart of Mark's gospel is this, to expose the true King, which is King Jesus. So before we really get into our text, I think it'll be helpful to maybe get a little bit background of the gospel of Mark, because this understanding and context of Mark will actually play a huge role in how we understand this text. So first, Mark is obviously written by a saint, John Mark. Uh, they, they seem to think that John Mark, he, well, we know he spent a lot of time with Paul and he spent a lot of time with Peter. And they actually think that a lot of what we see in the gospel of Mark is from Peter. If you know a little bit about the gospels, Peter was a very close follower. He was a disciple of Jesus. So this Mark is like a firsthand account of the life of Christ. And what a lot of scholars think is through the eyes of Peter. But I actually want to hone in a little bit of who the book was written to. Because that's when it really begins to expose how we can understand this text. See, when Mark is writing this gospel, he's primarily writing to a Gentile audience. A non-Jew audience. Specifically those in Rome. And what makes that so significant is that when Mark is writing this gospel, if you're a Christian in Rome, you're not having a good time at all. A lot of Christians in Rome at this time of the gospel was experiencing a lot, I mean a lot of persecution. There was a king or a Caesar called King Nero. For the first five years of King Nero's reign of his Caesardom, he was a pretty chill guy. But, but we don't know really what happened. But after five years, Nero went absolutely crazy. Went absolutely crazy. He, he started destroying his own city where many scholars are saying that Nero is the king who kind of set his entire city on fire. Like he just went crazy. Well, because of all these fires that's been spread across Rome, there's always when something bad happens, right? We want to point blame, right? Like who did it? Whose fault is it? And King Nero decided to point his fingers to Christians. 
So what he's saying to all these Romans is saying, hey, the reason why your house has burned down, the reason why you lost all your livestock, reason why you lost your mother or your brother to a fire was because of these people who say that they follow Jesus. And because of that, Nero decided to begin to send his own military into his cities, round up all the Christians and begin persecuting them, begin putting them to death in myriads of different ways. Most notably, what Nero was known for in his persecution to the Christian was that he will take a Christian who was alive, dip them in tar, light them on fire, and then they will become his personal lamppost in his own gardens. He was doing anything to torture and persecute those who followed Christ. So, so that is who Mark is writing to. To these Christians who are experiencing a tremendous amount of persecution by the hands of King Nero. And I think what's so amazing is how Mark decides to start his gospel. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that. Look at verse 1 with me. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. So when you're a Roman Christian, a Roman Gentile Christian in this time period, when you read that very first sentence of Mark's gospel, your antenna is pinging. The first thing that they see is gospel. Another way that you can say the word gospel is good news. So Mark is saying, hey brother, hey sister that's going through this persecution, this is the beginning of the good news. Despite of how much bad news you're in through King Nero. But this is the beginning of the good news. About who, Mark? Well, about Jesus Christ. And again, their minds are pinging when they see the word Jesus Christ, because one, the name Jesus actually translates to God saves. And Christ, it's not his last name, it's actually a title. So we say Jesus Christ, that's not his last name, it's his title. And what that title is, is anointed one. So let's pull all these together. This is the beginning of the good news of the king who's gonna save. That's what they read. That's what they saw. And this king is unlike any other king because look who he's from. The lineage of God himself, the son of God. I can't imagine when those Roman Gentile Christians that's going through all this persecution, when they read that first line, how much life that brought into them. Because they're reading about the true king, the king who saves the king who gives life, the king who restores, where King Nero is a king who's about power, about control, about death. So right here, right from the start, Mark is is painting a clash, a clash between this worldly king, King Nero, and our righteous, heavenly, true king, the anointed king, King Jesus. And that's the introduction to Mark. Mark 1.1. Everything that we read from this point on is pointing back to that truth. The gospel message of the king who saves. 
So every story we read, every miracle we read, every parable we unravel, it is to expose that truth, the anointed king who saves. So with that being the start of the gospel, Mark will now give us three truths of this arrival of this new king. So let's begin looking at that now. Point one, the announcement of the king. The announcement of the king. So it's custom when a king walks into the room that they will be announced, right? That, that no one can just walk into a room and say, I'm the king now. Look at me, I am the king. It doesn't work that way. You need someone who, to go in before you and to announce it. The, the best example I could think of, like what does that look like? Because we don't really have kings like that here in America, is the Disney movie Aladdin. So we see Aladdin, he gets three wishes, right? And he wants the princess to fall in love with him. And he thinks the only way the princess would fall in love is if he becomes a king, if he becomes a prince. So he tells the genie, I wish that I was a king. And then in the movie, the genie, he dresses up as a herald. He clothes himself in the nicest uh, clothes and goes into the city before Aladdin and sing songs and dance and lets the whole city know that Prince Ali is here. And that's kind of what the herald does. Hey, everybody, stop what you're doing because someone important is here. And the way that Mark does that for us is through two Old Testament prophecies. And what's interesting about these prophecies is that they're actually not pointing to Jesus, but the one who's going to come before Jesus. So look at verses two and three with me. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So right here we see two Old Testament prophecies, something that God has spoken before. And one is from the book of Malachi and the other is from the book of Isaiah. Now, out of all the prophecies to point to Christ, again, why is Mark only going to use these two? The first prophecy that we see in verse 2 is from Malachi. I'm going to actually read Malachi 3.1 from when it was first prophesied, and it really helps us to understand what Mark is doing. If you want to find Malachi, go back to Matthew, and then go back one more book, and then you're in the book of Malachi. Uh, but Malachi 3.1, and I, I, pay, pay close attention to what's being said. It's a massive detail that was prophesied over 400 years ago. So this is from Malachi 3.1, hundreds of years ago. Behold, I send my messenger. All right, so that means God is gonna send another prophet. And here it is. And he will prepare the way before me. How interesting is that? Did you catch it? The messenger that's going to come is preparing the arrival of the king. But who is the king? It's me, meaning God. God is the king. The, the king who is to come, the anointed king that was prophesied hundreds of years ago, is going to be a king unlike any other king because this king will be me. How cool is that? We know right from, the, from way, 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 way back that the king would be 
God. So that's the first big truth to unravel. And then the second prophecy that we see is in verse 3. Isaiah 40, verse 3. says, let's read that. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And what, what, why is Mark wanting to use Isaiah 40? Isaiah 40 is, is a very interesting chapter in the entire Bible. What makes Isaiah 40 a very pivotal chapter is that it's, two things are happening. At the time in Isaiah 40, God's people have rebelled. They've done messed up like usual. So God sends judgment. Babylon. Babylon comes in, takes them over, brings them into captivity, and now God's people are in exile. And then Isaiah 40 comes saying, children, be comforted because the near restoration is here. The restoration of the land is coming where your children are going to be brought back into their land. So Isaiah 40 is talking about a coming restoration. No longer are they going to be in the hands of Babylon, but yet they're now going to be restored back in their own land. So Isaiah 40 is pointing to this near future restoration. But what about us? How does this affect us? Well, also Isaiah 40 is doing something quite amazing. It's pointing to the future restoration. But this restoration is going to look completely different. This restoration is not going to be a restoration from the hands of Babylon. This is not going to be a restoration from the hands of Romans or King Nero. But this will be a restoration of the heart. To set the captive sinner free. That restoration is coming from Christ. So I don't know about you. I don't, I don't know about if you ever had moments in your life where you just kind of felt like you needed to be restored. Maybe after like a long week or a bad day, or maybe you get an argument with your spouse or with your children, and then like you just kind of like throw your hands up, like, I wish I could restore that. I wish I could redo that one. We, we will spend a lot of our lives trying to figure out the answer to that question like, how do I fix what I just broke? And what Mark is doing and what he's preparing us to see is that any kind of restoration that we are looking for first must be the restoration of the heart. Fast forward through the Gospels and now into different letters. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5.10 says this. Pay, pay, pay close attention to what he says. And after, ha and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, and here it is, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 5.10. Who is Peter talking about? Who's going to be the one to restore you, to confirm you, to strengthen you, to establish you? It is no other than King Jesus. That's where Mark is pointing us to. So we must remember these prophecies in Malachi and Isaiah, they're over 400 years. So for 400 years, God's people have been waiting and waiting and waiting. It's as if God has went silent. Where is God? Where is this king? Where is this messenger? 
Well, that leads us to our second point, the preparation of the king, the preparation of the king. So typically when we think of preparing for the arrival of a king, our minds may go to Oscar night, right? Like, hey, get the red carpet out. The king is here. Grab the finest clothes. Grab the best wine and foods. The king is arriving. Well, because Jesus is a different kind of king, his preparation looked slightly different than what we may think a king arrival would look like. Look at verse four with me. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So right here, the preparation of this king begins with a guy in the wilderness telling people that they're sinners and that they need to be baptized. Mark doesn't really give us a whole lot of details of John the Baptist. Uh, we have to go to Matthew, Luke, and John to like, figure out like, who is this John the Baptist guy? When we go to Matthew, Luke, and John, we learn about John the Baptist that he uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. We learn that John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus. We learn that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. So why on earth does John or Mark describe John in this way? Because look at verse six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust honey and locust and wild honey. So, so out of all the things for Mark to tell us about John the Baptist, Mark seemed the most important thing to tell us is that this was a man who wore camel hair with a belt and ate bugs and some honey. That doesn't seem as cool as saying John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus. So why is Mark describing John the Baptist this way as a weird looking guy who eats bugs? To understand what Mark is trying to do, we need to understand this parallel nature that he's painting for us. What Mark is trying to do is show us that John the Baptist, this guy in the wilderness, he is the true prophet, the true messenger. If we hop all the way back to 2 Kings, it's another book in the Old Testament, we see another prophet, a prophet Elijah. Listen to how this prophet dressed himself. 2 Kings 1.8, talking about the prophet Elijah, he wore a garment of hair, and a belt of leather around his waist. Now, doesn't that sound just like John the Baptist? So remember, it's been over 400 years. There's been no prophet. It's as if God has been silent. And then now, out of the wilderness, comes a man who's wearing a camel hair and with a belt around his waist. Who do you think they think he is? Elijah. This is a man who is a prophet from God, he is dressing like a prophet. He is acting like a prophet. But during that 400 years, with God being silent in a way, what we see happen is a lot of people, a lot of groups of people begin to emerge. Because we're trying to figure out, like, how do we get back to God? Like, God, has God abandoned us? Has God left us? Has he gone to start a new creation? Like, where's he at? We see groups like the Pharisees arise saying, if you want to get to God, it's about what you can do to get to God. It's about doing X, Y, and Z. And then you'll be a holy person. 
I mean, that's still kind of like us today, right? Like maybe if I just go to church every Sunday, then God will love me. Or if I give more of my time or my money, then God will love me. If I take in someone who is struggling, then God will love me. Like, like let's, what can we do for God to love me? But then John the Baptist enters the scene. And do you notice that the message that John the Baptist is preaching The message to prepare for King Jesus is not a message about what you're going to do with your hands, but it's a message about what you're going to do with your heart. It's a message of repentance and confession of sin. John's message in preparing for the arrival of this king is a message about the heart. So get your heart ready. And why was John wanting us to prepare for repentance and confession of sin, that is where we need to be restored. That is where we're at our core broken. Uh, Sin is anything that we put above God. Uh, Sin is anything that we see to be better than God. One thing that we need to understand is that God is creator. He created all things. And then when we as fallen people begin to put the created above the creator that belittles God and that demeans God. And that is the very thing that John the Baptist says that you need to confess. What are the things that you are putting above God? I know for me, the the thing, it is like the thing that just comes back to me all the time. Because sin can be subtle, it can like hide in the shadows. Uh, one thing early on for me as a kid, and I still fight with it, is that I, I find a lot of my identity in being a people pleaser. Like that, that is just who I am. Like I love saying yes to people. Because I feel if I say yes, then that they will love me. And then if I say no, then they'll hate me. My sin is that I am putting what other people think above God and what does God say about me? Either if you're like me, like you're a people pleaser or you're the exact opposite, but we all have our sin. But it's all pointing to one thing. What do you see to be more worthy of? What do you see worthy of your worship? For me, it was other people's approval. For you, it could be money or lust. That's what John's saying to come and do to take whatever you're saying is better than God and confess it, to repent from it, to turn and run away. And that's what the message John the Baptist is saying. You're a sinner, so come and prepare your heart. And and what's really interesting, you think that a message of saying, hey, you're awful, you're a sinner, is not a message that would go over well. But look at verse five. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river of Jordan. I mean, it's kind of amazing. This was kind of like a national event, a national revival. Everyone is wanting to get a part of this, to get ready for the king who is coming. The nation is flocking into the wilderness to to be an example and to show, to repent from their sins and confess their sins to their friends and families and neighbors. The way that they were demonstrating this repentance and this confession was through baptism. So John 
baptized them and said, okay, there you go. This is your outward symbol of you repenting of your sins. But one thing that we cannot confuse, this is not a baptism of salvation. Those who came to John the Baptist were not being saved when they were baptized in that Jordan the river. This was a baptize of intention, meaning when Christ comes, that their hearts will be ready to profess Christ as their king. So, so John the Baptist, in any way, is not saying once you are dunked in the waters of Jordan that they're saved. He is just saying, just create a heart posture of repentance and confession. This was not a baptism of salvation. Because what I fear, church, is that so, for so many of us, if we're not careful, we have the intentions to follow Christ, but we'll never follow Christ intentionally. We say, all right, Christ, I, I, well, I was baptized, I am good. Or I, I said a prayer, I am good. I came down to the altar, I am good. We have the intentions to follow Christ, but we never pick up our cross and follow him intentionally. We never die to ourselves. We never truly confess and repent of our sins and run to the cross of Christ. So this baptism that John is preparing for the arrival of king is saying, get your heart ready because the kingdom of God is at hand. So the question for us this morning, church, is how are you preparing for Christ? Because Christ will return again. At the first coming of Christ, Christ came as a lamb, a humble king, to be the payment of of, of sin and the forgiveness of sin, the perfect blood shed. He came as a lamb. But church, get ready. Because when Christ returns, he is not coming back as a lamb, but he's coming back as a lion, a warrior to execute his justice over this creation. So how are you preparing for that return of the lion? The lion of Judah the true rightful king over this creation and over this earth. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, I plead with you, allow today be the day that you repent and believe to run to the cross of Christ because he is coming. The king is here. But if you are a Christian here this morning, church, I want to plead with you that there is a myriad, there's a plethora of people that we know, that we love in our family, in our neighborhood, in our workplace that has yet to hear about this king, the king who is to come, the king to rule and reign. Let them know about their need of King Jesus. One way that John the Baptist just really brings it all together in our third and final point, the superior king. So John the Baptist is preparing the way of Christ. And one of the amazing things about this, this brother and this prophet is that he never would point to himself, but he always pointed to the king because he recognized that Christ is truly superior. Look at verse, look at verse seven with me. And he preached, talking about John the Baptist, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie. John the Baptist will say it another way in John 3.30, he must increase, 
but I must decrease. The level of humility that John the Baptist is showing about Jesus Christ is that he's even saying that, that John the Baptist, like, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to do the most filthiest act, which is to untie the sandals of this king, King Jesus. That's not even a job that I am worthy of. He is, that is how much more mightier than Christ is than me. But church, you know what's so breathtaking about all of this? About Christ being the true superior king? Is that yes, Christ is the superior king. But yet he will still lower himself down. And that's not what kings do. Kings elevate themselves. They've set themselves on the elevated throne. But when Christ came here on earth, he came not as a king to rule with the iron fist, but he came as a servant. He came in the humility of one not to be served, but to serve. One of the biggest like thematic verses in all of Mark. Uh, if you take notes, write down Mark 10, 45. Highlight it, underline it. It is a key verse in the entire gospel of Mark. Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is the king, the superior king that we're worshiping. I want to tell you a quick story about another kind of king, a king that we see in the Bible as we're ending our time here this morning in the Word. This king that we read about is in Daniel 3. At the start of Daniel 3, what we see is that there's this massive golden image, this massive golden statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. They estimated this statue to be about nine stories tall. And King Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was worthy to be worshipped. That people should bow down and worship him for he is the king. So he, he erected this massive golden statue and told everyone to come and worship the statue. Come and worship me. But then there were three. There were three who had a different plan because they're not going to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar because he is not God. So word got to King Nebuchadnezzar. That, hey, there's three Jews, there's three people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that refuses to bow down to your statue. So Nebuchadnezzar, he became full in rage, got so angry that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to this statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. So what he does, he decides to throw them into the fiery furnace. He, he tried, he's trying to make a point, saying, if you're gonna come against me, me as king, then this is gonna be your result. So the guards came and bound up the three, threw them in the fiery furnace. The fiery furnace was so hot, even the guards who threw them in there burned to death. It was blazing hot. And King Nebuchadnezzar's like, all right, I'll show you. Daniel 3, 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. Why? He went to his counselor. Did we not cast three men bound to the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, we did. And he answered them and said, but I see, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. 
And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Church, Jesus was not just the fourth man that King Nebuchadnezzar saw walking around in that fiery furnace. He was their faithful savior. Jesus will take upon himself the fiery cross and lay down his life so that we may have it. That is the true anointed king. He's a king unlike any other king. Jesus is able to sympathize in our weakness because he was made weak. Jesus is able to sympathize when you feel broken because you because he was made broken. Jesus knows what it means to go low, for he was weighed low to the pits of death so that he may raise you up. It all points to the truth that Christ is our superior king. I just love how John the Baptist says in verse eight, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John knows the only thing that he can offer people is to put them in water and bring them back up. But there's one king who will give them their life and give them life and bring them life. And that is King Jesus, where he himself will give his spirit to them. One commentator says it this way, that John's baptism was symbolic and provisional of a more permanent and powerful reality to come. And that powerful reality that is to come is that those who follow Jesus Christ are not just baptized with water, but with his spirit. So as we end our time this morning, church, I want us to end in the, where Mark is going to be going to. So go ahead and flip to Mark chapter 8 with me quickly. Mark chapter 8. I want us all to be able to see what Mark is trying to help us to see. Mark chapter 8 verse 27. Everything that we read is pointing to Mark 8, 27. 27 to 30. Jesus went to all his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And all the way he asked his, his, his disciples... Who do people say that I am? And his disciples told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the anointed king, the one who will save That was Peter's confession of realizing that he is truly the Messiah that was promised, the king, the long-awaited king. So this morning, as we take time here in this moment to reflect and to pray, the question I have for all of us is, who is Christ? And my hope is that we will all say that he is our king. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for This morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Mark and the truth and the hope that we see that Jesus Christ is truly our long-awaited King. So Father, I pray now in this moment, use your spirit to convict our hearts. In your son's name we pray, amen.